0: Optimal At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is in my perfect time. What if I did the
1: opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Me
0: This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find an amazing designer and create designs you'll love. From logos, to branding, to packaging, to books, you name it, they have it. And I've used them for just about everything. 99designs is the go-to creative resource for any budget. I've used them for years now for book covers, for instance, mock ups of The Four Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for the multi volume Tau of Seneca, including the cover, and many other creative projects. I've been very impressed by the quality of their work. Most recently, I used 99 Designs to update the illustrations and layout of my Five Morning Rituals ebook. The illustrations worked out great. I loved working with the designer we selected and I plan to work with him on more projects in the future and that's something you can do. You don't have to start from scratch every time. And right now, my listeners can get $20 off plus a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. Simply submit a brief on the site describing what you need, and designers who are interested in your project, often from around the world, will submit concepts for you to choose from. You refine as you go, give feedback, and once you're ready, you choose one to finalize. It's a great way to get started and find the right match. A great designer and a great design. At a great price. So head to 99designs.com forward slash Tim to learn more or get started today. You can also see examples of some of the work that I have done with designers on 99designs. So check it out 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is, invariably, Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, This episode is brought to you by Humans Beat Elite. The product is Beat Elite, not Meat Elite, not Beat, B-E-A-T, but Beat, B-E-E-T, Elite, which you might consider an endurance superfood, or what they would call a nitric oxide activator. Really, all I care about is this product, Beat Elite, was introduced to me several years ago by a multiple-time world champion and has since been recommended to me by multiple world-class athletes, and I use it pre-workout for endurance training. That could be cycling, that could be swimming, it is very rarely running, but uh, my subjective experience supports what some of the research would seem to indicate, and that is that you can work out, say, up to 15 to 18 percent longer if you're looking at high-intensity interval training, HIT, for instance, and uh, at recovery times. So the uh, let's call it the refractory period for getting back to peak power output, for instance. So I use Beatley, Just used it this morning before a 30-minute, somewhat intense swim workout. And I have found that particularly for someone like myself who has really terrible endurance, genetically speaking, my presets are horrible, that it really does allow a 10 to 20% boost in shorter workout performance, especially. Although I do know people who've used it for 20-mile runs, 30-mile runs, much longer endurance events. And uh, they've got all sorts of different points about the mechanisms of action and so on, but suffice to say that it is a lot easier to consume elite than to eat the nitric oxide equivalent of six whole beets, for instance. Much more rapidly assimilated, and uh, it tastes great. Uh, It will also stain your pet polar bear or your white cotton or your down pillows. So don't spill it on anything, but it does taste delicious. I tend to mix this into a shake that I have pre-workout in the mornings. So there you have it. I've used Beat Elite for a number of years now. It is trusted by hundreds of elite teams, athletes, and organizations all over the world. And it is also informed sport certified, which means that it is certified to not contain any banned substances. So if you're a competitive athlete, that is one fewer thing that you need to worry about. So take your performance to the next level with Beat Elite. Try it out go to livehuman.com slash Tim to get 20% off your first purchase. The team at Human, that's the company, is making this offer exclusive to you, my dear listeners. So check it out. Go to livehuman.com slash Tim. Super simple. livehuman.com slash Tim. Give it a shot. Hello boys and girls, this is Tim Ferriss and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, aka Tim Tim Talk Talk for you long-term listeners. And yet, it is my opportunity and privilege again to interview a world-class performer to try to tease out the habits, routines, belief systems, lessons learned, etc. that you can apply to your own life. And the subject Today, the interviewee is chairman and chief executive officer of the Walt Disney Company, Robert A. Iger, also known as Bob Iger. You can say hello on Twitter at Robert Uiger, Iger, I G E R. He is the steward of one of the world's largest media companies and some of the most respected and beloved brands around the globe. Since becoming CEO in 2005, Iger has built on Disney's rich history of storytelling and innovation with the acquisitions of Pixar in 2006, Marvel in 2009, Lucasfilm in 2012, and 21st Century Fox in 2019. These are gigantic deals, and we'll talk more about them. And he's also responsible for, he was at the helm for the landmark opening of Disney's first theme park and resort in mainland China. Shanghai Disney Resort in 2016. Look up that just to get an idea of the magnitude. It is incredibly large. And speaking of incredibly large, under his watch, Disney's value has roughly 5 x I don't know what the exact stock price is at the time of this recording, but quintupled. Quinn toppled the stock price and the value of the company. Always one to embrace new technology, and that is a huge asset and perspective that he's brought to the table. Iger has created an ambitious direct-to-consumer strategy that leverages Disney's unparalleled creative content across new platforms, including the new Disney Plus streaming service, ESPN Plus, Hulu, and Hotstar. Iger serves on the boards of the National September 11 Memorial and Museum and Bloomberg Philanthropies. He is a graduate of Ithaca College. His new autobiography is titled The Ride of a Lifetime, subtitle Lessons Learned from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. It's a great read as someone who is obsessed with deal making and structuring and negotiating, this book has tons of war stories and uh, lots of detail for anyone who is similarly interested. And I would say overall, the book is really less about how to become a CEO, although it covers that and how to lead and more about how to think about fear and live with less fear, metabolize fear differently. So with all that said, Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with none other than Bob Iger. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. I have been studying the path that you have traveled to get to where you are, and it's such an embarrassment of riches from an interviewing perspective. It's hard to know where to begin, but I was Uh, taking a look at a few different chapters in your life and in your book, and I thought we might start with if you could tell the story of your whiteboard session with Steve Jobs and the the pro and con list, and you can give context however you think is best.
1: Sure. Um, I uh, called Steve Jobs uh, with a crazy idea, the idea being that uh, Disney should buy Pixar, And uh, one of the things I learned when you mentioned to Steve you had a crazy idea, he needed to hear it right away. Uh, So even though I wanted to wait and tell him in person, he forced me to tell him on the phone. Uh, But instead of either laughing me off the phone or rejecting it summarily, he invited me up to meet him at Apple uh, to discuss it further. And uh, some time after the phone call that I had made, I found myself sitting. In the boardroom at the Apple headquarters in Cupertino, California, uh, alone at a long, long table uh, with a whiteboard on the wall that was almost as long as the table itself, so many, many feet. And Steve said we needed to have an exercise to discuss the pros and cons of uh, Pixar uh, being bought by Disney. As as I probably should have expected, uh, Steve was the one that uh, held a writing <laughs> instrument and stood at the board. So he was kind of the conductor of the session in more ways than one. <laughs> and, uh, he said something like, you know, you go first. And I didn't really have the guts to go first. I said, no, you go first. And he wrote pros and cons just as you expect and started listing a set of cons that were a mile, seemed like a mile long to me. Uh, they were so numerous So much so that I said to him at some point when he had said to me, well, why don't you name a few pros? Uh, I said, it it hardly seems worth it. You've listed so many cons that I don't really see how we go forward. And he said, no, no, you got to come up with a few. And uh, I I did. I suggested a few. Uh, Actually, to his credit, as I recollect, he had a couple as well. But by the time we were done with the exercise, uh, the list was still... Uh, far more tilted in the con direction than the pro direction. So I reiterated to him uh, my pessimism about doing anything, basically saying, uh, given the, the fact that the cons are, are so more n- numerous than the pros, maybe there's just this is just futile. He said, no, not at all. Just sometimes a couple of really big pros uh, are far outweigh many, many cons, which I thought was quite interesting. He was able to look at this list and not count the sheer number of items, but uh, tally up the kind of the relative importance or lack thereof of the items. And that led to uh, him saying something like, let's keep the door open. We should continue to talk about this. What do we need to do next? And that led to my saying, I think I need to visit Pixar. I think I went the way I put it, see what's under the hood. Uh, suggesting that I, you know, I look under and take take a really close look at the engine that was Pixar to see whether I could get at whether the value was there um, for us to buy
0: and some of the cons that Steve put on this board were uh, seemingly so strong that you couldn't possibly uh, over overturn them or outweigh them or counterbalance them in the sense that somewhere Disney's culture will destroy Pixar. Uh, yes. Your board will never let you do it. And, yes. and, and a distraction will kill Pixar's creativity, all caps.
1: <laughs> yes. Thank you. By the way, you're quoting from my book. I don't have it in front of me, yep. but yes, uh, <laughs> those were all things that he said of those three. But by the way, I, I think, we both felt that it was not a foregone conclusion that the Disney board would 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 let us do this. But that was not the biggest deterrent, at least not that day. He had really, really uh, strong uh, feelings about the culture of Pixar and the need to protect and preserve it. And his experience with Disney, well, it might have been good at one point, had turned horribly bad. And he viewed Disney as an overly bureaucratic, overly process-oriented, not overly collaborative culture. And he thought that if we owned Pixar, that type of culture would obliterate the culture that was at Pixar. And he felt that Pixar culture was more responsible for their creative success than any one thing or any one person. And so and this actually played out in great detail as the negotiation were on his desire to make sure that even in a in a full-blown sale to Disney that Disney would not um, in, in effect impose its culture on Pixar to the detriment of Pixar. And uh, that was a that was a a theme that not only, um, dominated the negotiation, but actually once we went forward after the deal was done, we took a lot of steps to see that that didn't happen.
0: I have a few questions about this, this specific meeting and also your orientation going into a meeting like that. I I recall watching an interview you did some time ago, this is a few years ago with uh, Kara Swisher and Mark Andreessen on stage. And you were talking about how, at one point, as it relates to earnings calls and uh, so on, uh, speaking publicly about the challenges and the, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but the the difficult, uh, perhaps obstacles or threats, gives you increased credibility than when you're talking about the things that you're excited about or optimistic about. And when I was reading this description of the meeting, I, I I had to wonder what your read of Steve was in the room as he was writing down all these cons and and uh, was he playing the reluctant seller to hide enthusiasm about possibly getting the deal done uh, or how did you interpret the, the feeling in the room at that, at that point,
1: I never detected that Steve was ever acting or trying to act or, or saying anything or, or trying to communicate or convey anything to me other than what, what was really true or what he really believed that there was, this was not a charade in any way. I think he was, intrigued with the notion of selling Pixar, which is not something he had been thinking about very seriously. Um, But he hadn't yet uh, come to the conclusion that it was the right thing to do. He came to the conclusion that it was the right thing to seriously consider. And so I felt that everything he was putting on the table in front of me or on the board in front of me were things that he genuinely believed or was was concerned about, and um, so authenticity was to me very apparent that, that 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 day, and actually it was always the case with him as I came to, both both learn and appreciate. I had
0: uh, read in a separate profile, and please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, that Steve used to call you. Now it says Saturday mornings. I don't know if it was limited to Saturday mornings, but when he thought a film was a dud, is that is that true? Could you elaborate,
1: Steve? Uh, I sense while he liked his his quiet time and he liked to be still, uh, never allowed himself to be quiet or still for too long, and weekends sometimes I think got a little quiet for him, and so. He would call me on a fairly regular basis on weekends, and actually say, "I was just bored, so I called you." <laughs> I don't think I said that in the. I don't think I wrote that in the book, but so the calls were, and often not about anything, just about things. In other words, um, "Hey, let's talk." You know, it's Saturday morning. It's usually late Saturday morning or late Saturday afternoon let's just chat. Like, what are you doing? Um, and what I loved about those calls is he was generous too. I, you know, I could easily ask him the question, well, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and there are times he'd go into a dissertation about some product he was developing at Apple for instance. So it became like almost this private lecture, uh, <laughs> series that I was participating in. Um, Uh, I I came to really appreciate those uh, those calls and there's one particular one that that you mentioned he called Saturday with something specific on his mind it was actually I think a Sunday that time and he said hey how are you which was very quick often Uh, I went to the movies last night with my son Reed and we saw Iron Man 2 and it sucked like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> not I didn't give me a chance to say, oh, you saw Iron Man 2. That's nice. No, it was like right, th- you know, <laughs> stream of consciousness. <laughs> no pause. I saw Iron Man 2 and it sucked. Oh, I remember saying to him, that's interesting. I You know, I, I respect your opinion, but it's not consistent with the opinion of many others. It did extremely well. Like, you know, the, the audience voted and they liked it. And he chuckled. He said, well, I just I thought it was terrible, and so did Reed. And that was it. That was it. And I, I think I said at that point, well, you're entitled to your opinions. I, I, one of the things that I loved about my relationship with him, and I give him all the credit for this, is he quickly brought our relationship to the point where he could say things to me uh, that were honest and sometimes, well, harsh in a way but without meaning to harm anybody in other words i never felt threatened he challenged me but he, i never felt threatened or abused or or criticized to the point of it damaging uh, me or my, my my reputation or my or my uh my um, relationship with him so
0: I'd, I'd love to hop backwards in time uh or although I suppose the recollection of this is is present tense, but uh for people who don't know the name and I, I, I looked up some video to try to ensure I'm pronouncing this correctly, Rune Arledge. Uh that name came up uh very close to the whiteboard story that we were discussing. In the following context, one of the things I've always instinctively felt, I'm quoting here, and something that was greatly reinforced working for people like Rune and Michael, is that long shots aren't usually as long as they seem. Could you describe what you mean by that and uh, how that was taught to you or how you absorbed it from, uh, say, Rune in this example?
1: Rune Arledge was uh, president of ABC Sports when I started at ABC Sports in the mid-70s, uh, and someone I, I worked for for 10 years. He worked for me for 10 years as well, and then he also became president of ABC News, and um, he established a reputation in both places as being a gigantic risk taker, a showman, an innovator, and uh, and someone with an incredible eye, for a great story and uh, he's given credit for basically being the father of modern day television sports coverage and one of the reasons in which he deserved by the way and one of the reasons he gets that credit uh, is that he was willing to try a lot of big things things that had not been done before and um go places that no one had ever gone, tell stories that no one had ever told. Um, just generally, he was quite an innovator. And one of the things that I quickly learned from Rune is he had a lot of big ideas that he would turn then to his team, which I was a member, and ask us to implement them. And it's very easy sometimes when someone brings a, a big idea to you to say, well, that's almost impossible to to do or this will never happen or i don't know how i get that done but working for him you quickly learned that he didn't take no for an answer and he expected you to pull out all the stops never by the way um forcing us to uh you know suffer a loss of integrity or do something that wasn't morally correct but he certainly believed that uh, all the energy in the world Um, should be be applied to getting a tough task done or all the ingenuity. And I loved, particularly in my 20s when I started working for him, I loved that lesson um, because he didn't take no for an answer. And I think there's a lot of value in that. So he could ask us to do things. I remember once he asked me when I was a lowly programmer for a program called ABC's Wide World of Sports, to get the rights to the World Table Tennis Championships, which were going to be taking place in Pyongyang, North Korea, as a for instance. And <laughs> not the easiest thing in the world to even figure out how to do, but it resulted in um, meetings in Beijing and um, with the North Koreans and ultimately getting the rights and then having to deal with the U.S. State Department who wouldn't let ABC Sports Pay the North Koreans directly because of sanctions and having to pay a World Table Tennis Federation out of Wales the money that would then go to the, the North Koreans and so on and so on a near Herculean task that in Rune's mind was never particularly Herculean it was just something <laughs> he felt we should do and if, and we got the rights through a tremendous amount of perseverance and ingenuity and sent a crew in to Pyongyang North Korea. And I think 1979, what I remember is that it was the first U.S. crew of any kind, television crew of any kind that went to Pyongyang since before the Korean War. You
0: so you strike me and have, have always struck me as as I've followed uh, much of what you've done in the world as an exceptionally good and creative deal, deal maker. And I, I would love to know how that, if that's, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, I take it to be true, but where that was cultivated or who helped you to develop that skill, to think through something that others might give up on, like this task you were given and to find the workarounds, to look for the possibilities instead of just staring at the obstacles, who helped to cultivate that in you or teach you that ability to deal make?
1: well, as i as I think back on this Odyssey of a career, and I'm often asked kind of, "How did you get where you where you are?" Uh, I will answer the question directly, but three things are come to mind in terms of contributing to my success. Two are not relevant to this question: hard work and luck. The third one is mentorship. I worked for some incredibly talented people, talented creatively talented from a pure business perspective and they either uh, consciously and proactively taught me a lot or i simply learned by watching them learning learning from uh, from them through observation and one would would be the the ability to negotiate and uh, michael eisner was great at that Uh, rune arledge was great at that a few other of my bosses at um, at abc sports A man named Jim Spence was particularly good at it. Uh, Just people that were constantly kind of going head to head with some entity that was selling something that we wanted to buy, uh, knowing that they had to buy it because it was important to the organization. They needed to get it fast so that no one else did, and they needed to get it the best possible price. And so I watched people do that. And, you know, not only how to get the best outcome, but how to get the best outcome the fastest. and Or how to even convince someone who wasn't even intent on selling something to sell it to us, which was the case in, with Steve at that point. It was the case with George Lucas, you know, a number of years later with Lucasfilm. It was the case with uh, Ike Perlmutter and Marvel. These were businesses that were not necessarily for sale that, um, uh, you know, we had we first convinced – I guess I did in all three cases them to sell, and then convince them to sell at a price that made the most sense, not only for us but for for them as well. But I had great. I worked for great people, and for over a long period of time, you know, it was I, I was in the business for thirty years before I got the job as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Thirty years—that's a long. That's a a long education. It's a long education, and I
0: would say that. Uh, you seem to have done a very good job of learning lessons and then implementing skills along the way. I mean, there are people who make the same mistakes for 20 years or 30 years or more. Uh, and you've evolved over time. When you look back at whether it's, say, Jim Spence or the other people that you named or your own experience, uh what what are some of the things that separate a good negotiator from a great negotiator? Because the the criteria that you mentioned for some of these negotiations, getting uh, getting the deal done quickly, getting the best price possible, uh, form a what would seem to be a pretty difficult cocktail. So what what in your mind separates the A players from the B players from a negotiation standpoint?
1: Well, I think first of all, the, the, the thing that sets a good negotiator apart from a bad negotiator is one that gets a deal done. <laughs> right. it, it starts there, uh, in in a way that I think um, is satisfactory to both sides. I, I've always been a big believer, and this is sort of cliche, but you know, negotiation should be uh, should work both ways. To the, the buyer and the seller should come away both feeling good about it or maybe not both not feeling good about it. I'm not sure, but uh, um, I I happen to believe that a good negotiation is one that um, is is conducted efficiently and effectively. I don't think it's something that should be necessarily protracted because it takes a lot of time and energy. Um, It should be one where uh, the value that is seen by the buyer is delivered Uh, through the uh, transaction, by the transaction, which means that the price and the circumstances ought to, in some form or another, conform to the value proposition. That's really important. Uh, I like being very honest. I like getting to the heart of a negotiation fairly quickly. Um, I like putting my cards on the table instead of keeping them completely close to one's vest. Um, There are times, though, in a negotiation where I found you do have to get up and walk away from the table if the terms that you're looking at just do not make sense and be willing to lose a deal uh, if you can't get the right terms. I've done that a number of times. Um, But that's, I think, just good, honest negotiating. I don't don't approach negotiations with the need to win. I I approach them with a a desire to close a deal. I guess winning, that that certainly uh, contributes to winning Closing a deal, but when I mean winning, I mean winning on all points on all terms, et cetera. It's not that necessary to me. What do
0: you say to your team or at different points, your bosses or other uh, people who with within your organization were hoping for a deal to get done that you've rejected because you could not get the terms that you wanted? Is is there any way that you... Uh, you've learned to communicate that to uh, other people who are part of a team who may have had more of an emotional attachment to us, to a certain outcome, or is everybody just on the same page from the get go and you don't have to have that conversation?
1: No, I usually like to have a conversation with some member of my team who is entering in or embarking on a negotiation to get something. Um, I I usually like us to have an understanding about what, what the expense of the, of the that whatever the acquisition is w- w- will be in other words set parameters uh, go out and get it provided it's within a certain certain guidelines or expectations and if you can't get it at that walk away or let's have one more discussion I like I like those that are negotiating on our behalf uh, on things that matter to the company to the point where they're brought to my attention to know at what point walking away is acceptable. Uh, at what point, in effect, not getting something is okay because it's 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 not it's no longer affordable, or it's no longer justifiable from a from an economic perspective? Is that what you're trying to get at here? Yeah, that yeah, that's that's I think
0: what I'm getting at, and uh, I, th- I think what I'm also kind of uh, not tiptoeing, but moving and circling around is a broader topic of of risk taking. You mentioned that Rune was a risk taker. You have a reputation as a risk taker. But from at least what I can see, you strike me as also very uh, systematic, very calculated in the best possible way. What was your first or any early exposure to risk taking, whether your own or someone else's that you learned from? Does anything come to mind as, as as early influences in that regard?
1: Well, I saw a lot of risk-taking at ABC Sports, but it was, look, looking back, they're kind of quaint risks or modest risks. Um, I have to think about what some of those were. But, I mean, McRoon was one who stepped up early on and spent big money on buying rights to the Olympic Games and to covering sports, say the Olymp- Winter Olympics, that were not necessarily uh sports that america was f- that familiar with and are athletes who were not in any way household names but he believed that he could he could turn um the olympic games into into or, or find the stories in the olympic games that would be of great interest to people throughout america regardless of what country the athlete was from regardless of what sport they're in as a for instance i just watched that happen time and time again with him
0: looking at the picture that uh the headlines paint of your various mega successes i'd love to go all the way back to uh, the very beginning at abc and Correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but I, I I want to say that you've mentioned that your first boss at ABC said you weren't promotable. Is that true? Shh. And if so, wh- yes. why why were you looked at as unpromotable?
1: He was a, uh, it turns out he was a thief. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he got fired, uh, actually, I think he was let out of the building, I'm told. I wasn't there when it happened, but... Um, I think possibly with law enforcement people present, uh, because he had been caught embezzling. Um, But at the time, uh, we were were covering an event in New York, and we had to get some pickup trucks for the event. (laughs) And this is really kind of obscure, but this is how it happened. And I joked to someone, it was a coincidence, that I was moving apartments in New York that weekend. Wouldn't it be great if I could use the pickup truck over the weekend to move my furniture? I was actually just joking. Uh, They, because the pickup truck wasn't even in my possession, (laughs) (laughs) they passed that along to this particular boss, who was um, threatened by me already because I had been reluctant to carry out some of the orders that he had wanted carried out mainly using company property for his personal gain. And so he already saw me as a threat. And when he heard this, he called me into his office. He never challenged me at all on the pickup truck issue (laughs) at all, but he simply said, um, I don't really believe you have a future here. In fact, Iger you're not promotable and I'm giving you two weeks to find another job in this company. Or I'm going to fire you. And it wasn't until later that I found out that what it's what had it sparked this was someone spreading a rumor that I was potentially going to use the pickup truck, <laughs> 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 which was just silly. So, uh, so what then happened in the subsequent two weeks? Well, I was I took him very seriously, and um, I there was a, a job posting system at the company. It's kind of funny how quaint it was then. This is. 1975 uh, where there was a a, a clipboard uh, in the a lobby near the, or near the lobby of most of the buildings that abc was in and on the clipboard were postings of open jobs of the company in various divisions so i literally left his office went down and looked at this clipboard to see whether there are other jobs of the company that i might see myself doing so that i could get out of harm's way <laughs> And lo and behold, there was a job at ABC Sports. And what was coincidental about that is that I had been assigned to work on a Frank Sinatra concert at Madison Square Garden. And it was produced by Rune Arledge, who was head of ABC Sports. So Rune brought a lot of his ABC Sports production executives over to help produce the Frank Sinatra concert. So when I saw this job at ABC Sports on the job posting system, I called people I had worked with on the concert. They immediately said, well, come on over and we'll talk about it. And because they knew me from the work I had done on the concert, they they hired me on the spot. So kind of, I talked about luck contributing greatly to my success. It was just a matter of luck that I had worked on that show and that Rune had produced it. And that the very people who would save me from this boss who would deem me unpromotable were people that I had worked with some months earlier and were willing to take me in, uh, which proved to be uh, just fantastic. I worked at ABC Sports for 13 years, 10 of them for Rune Arledge, and worked my way up to the point where I had been Senior Vice President of Programming at ABC Sports, which then led me to other big jobs at ABC, all coming from that one moment of one being called unpromotable (laughs) and, and going to a job posting system and finding a job. So wild how the little things, the seemingly little things, <laughs> yes. coalesce at these points. I think that's true in life in many respects. You know, yeah. it's our, our lives in a way are a collection of little things, little occurrences yeah. that loom large and become much bigger as you know life goes on. It's and turn basically completely change the direction of your life. You know, based on something you never would have expected, could or would.
0: It's, it's really remarkable. And uh, it also brings to mind, you know, reading about many of your experiences, and I, I'm blanking on the attribution of this, but I read an essay not too long ago that talked about something called the, the luck surface area. So not to discount luck as a factor, but that there are things you can do to increase the surface area on which luck can stick if it happens to cross your path. And uh, I, I do like to explore habits in this podcast, and one of the there there are a number of habits that that come to mind as it relates to your life. One is one is exercise, and uh, it seems to be something you take very seriously. And I'm I'm wondering if you could speak to what role you feel exercise and fitness has has played in your trajectory or. Uh, in in life, I suppose broadly speaking, I can dig into more specifics if helpful. But I'd love to. No,
1: I I'd be glad to describe that and, and respond specifically. But I also want to come back to that whole notion of, you know, can you increase the incidence of luck, or can you position yourself in a way that takes better advantage of, of luck than 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 others, perhaps? So on specifically regarding exercise, uh, I exercise really for three reasons. Uh, one is uh, health, the second is vanity, and the third <laughs> is sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, the health part: my parents both had heart attacks at forty. Wow! And I learned at an early age that um, the, that a healthy lifestyle could ultimately save my life. They lived till they were eighty-five, by the way, both of them, but they they didn't live healthy lives, and I wanted to lead a healthy life and a long life. So I I changed my diet and exercise at pretty much an early age, I'd say at 20 or 20, certainly under 25 years old. Um, Second, I like to look good. Um, You know, maybe we all have a a little bit of vanity in us. Um, I guess you could argue that maybe looking good is a contributing factor to success. At least research suggests that it is. I've never really thought of it that way. But um, keeping myself fit so I just look better uh, makes me feel better. And then the third is actually just as important as the first, and that is I need quiet time. I need alone time. I need a time to be still with my thoughts. And exercise provides that for me. It's solitude, except for one day a week I, I, um, when I take a bike ride with friends. I pretty much exercise alone. I have a trainer come in a couple of days after I've exercised alone. But I exercise alone six days a week. Uh, And it gives me the time to dream, to think, to create, to organize, to prioritize, to reflect, you name it. And I find there's an energizing quality to all of that, but there's also a calming quality. And it has served me extremely well almost to the point of being a savior of sorts, meaning in, in the most, um, I don't know, pressured times and the busiest times, in times of either the most uncertainty or um, the, the most concern, I have that quiet time to exercise and give me a chance to um, either rejuvenate or put things in perspective. So huge value to that. What, uh,
0: for instance, this week, you could pick any day, yesterday, today, tomorrow, what, what does your regimen look like, just in, sp- in terms of specifics? What, uh, like what time of day, what, how long, what type of exercises, what do what what the details look like?
1: Well, uh, today is slightly abnormal, but not, not very, um, because I flew to New York from LA uh, late yesterday afternoon. So last night would be my first night on so East Coast time this week. Uh, but I got up at 4.30 uh, and 15 minutes later, I was on what's called a Versa Climber, which I have in my apartment in New York. Um, it's my go-to cardio exercise uh, during the week. I ride a bike on weekends um, and it's not necessarily for the faint of heart. It's something I've been doing since maybe 1991 or 1992, and it simulates climbing. Uh, it's a post that goes into the air, maybe about 10 feet, and has hand grips and foot pedals, and, and, and you raise your arms and your legs in coordination, and it's as though you're climbing up either a ladder or stairs or the side of a building. Uh, and I listen to music when I do that. I have a television on, but with no sound, and I listen to, to, uh, I like listening to music every day too. So I, I have numerous playlists or I'll just listen to an artist or an album. And, uh, sometimes I can close my eyes cause I'm, I'm basically tied into this thing in some form. I can't, <laughs> that easy to fall off. You don't have to have your eyes. You're not going to run into anything cause you're, <laughs> you're in one machine. Um, so I did that for 45 minutes and did a little bit of stretching and some ball work afterward and, had a cup of coffee and read and looked at the newspaper and then got on with my day. It's obvious, the obvious neat shower and shave and put on your, your work duds and and out the door I went at about uh, this morning, about 7.30. What do you put on the television that you have on mute? It's either a local news show or one of our TV stations, if I'm in, in the States, or ESPN. If I'm outside the country, and there's a TV in the gym that I'm working out in. It's typically not within my control. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched many a, a Chinese television news program or or um, or, or soap opera <laughs> 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 that time of day.
0: Uh, boy, yeah, this another time we can talk I know you've spent a lot of time in China I actually went to two universities in China a long, long time ago and we ended up, the students in this dormit- foreign experts dormitory they called it, mm-hmm. would watch these uh, kung fu soap operas <laughs> effectively yes. to, to pick up the the language which was uh, turned into a really pleasant routine On the That's why, ex- right, by the way, I think yeah.
1: that at one point there was a foreign experts hotel in Beijing Beijing, I don't know if that still exists. But, uh, or, or foreign expert's building yeah. in
0: Beijing. It's, a, it's it was a very flattering uh, it was a very flattering term to have applied to us uh, while keeping us conveniently separated from the rest of the student population. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, but uh, it was yeah, fascinating time. This was this was not to digress too far, but this was back when the and i'm i'm sure you remember these days the when the bicycles i mean the sea of bicycles oh, yes. mm-hmm. was still a phenomenon and uh remember by the
1: late 90s actually that's right.
0: yeah i was there in uh, 96 and mm-hmm. it was still uh, when uh as a as a poor student uh we would buy these long green people's liberation army jackets for the winter <laughs> <laughs> and uh what a trip yeah incredible. what i
1: remember most then about uh, china then was yet yeah, the bicycles would be on the top of the list the fact that people wore no col- colored clothing really it was yeah. they were either black or gray or dark green very dry uh, there, yeah. there were no colors and in the winter people would stand on street corners with with either pieces of charcoal or burning things or cook either cooking or burning to keep warm so there was a smell of charcoal in the air throughout Beijing. Yeah, in the winter. Then, yeah, it's yeah. changed a lot. It has
0: changed tremendously. I mean, not not a back then, not a not a Gucci or Prada store in sight, <laughs> no, or, a Mercedes
1: or, <laughs> or, or Mercedes or Ferrari, or Mercedes or Ferrari, or Nike for that matter, or <laughs> Disney. Even.
0: Yeah, yeah, things have changed a lot. Uh, but before I totally lose the thread, uh, because I, I'm so interested in this particular facet, uh, among others. The, on the exercise front, you mentioned that you do your solitary working out and then have a trainer come in at least uh, f- a few, a few times. twice a week. Twice mm-hmm. a week. What do you yeah. do solo on those days and what do you do with the trainer?
1: I do, I limit myself to only 30 minutes on the climber, <laughs> and he comes in afterward and we lift weights and stretch. Uh, at the ripe old age of 68, Lifting weights alone could be just a little dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So um, he helps me. First of all, he motivates me. He's actually a friend too, so it's nice interaction. He shows up at the house at five <laughs> twice a week That's when I'm sport. in L.A. Yeah. When I'm in L.A., he's a nice guy. He's a good friend, <laughs> and uh, and he makes sure that I don't kill myself. But he also <laughs> he, he pushes me enough, but then but keeps me within some guidelines to stay safe, and I like that.
0: I, I've read from a diet perspective that you don't eat much in terms of carbs, but that you do love pizza. Is this is this
1: accurate? <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I don't eat bread or pasta, uh, you know, save for the very occasional. It's a holiday, so I allow myself a bowl of pasta. But I gave up all bread. I'll never have a sandwich. Um, I had a turkey burger for lunch today without the bun. That's sort of typical. But I am a pizza devotee, and it is one of my vices. Uh, <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't many. And I allow myself a good pizza meal maybe once a month. Maybe sometimes I stretch it to two. But those are my carbs.
0: <laughs> do you have a favorite pizza? I mean, if you have, a, 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 is there a specific pizza that is your go-to uh, favorite I'm, pizza?
1: I'm, I, I try to find a good pizza in, in any place that I go. Um, there are many, but no, I'm I'm not really favored in the sense that I'll uh, uh, a, a any pizza is a good pizza to <laughs> me. <laughs> uh,
0: well, there's uh, of course uh, uh, just a just a an ocean of fantastic pizza in New York. There's a lot of good pizza in many places. Austin, where I'm sitting right now, yes. also has some really good pizza. Surprisingly, Home Slice and a number of others. So the next time you're here, uh, that could be. That can be allocated to yeah. the, the sanity bucket.
1: Yeah, what I do, what I do though is I find myself because also a lot written about food lately. And whenever I see an article about great pizza in a city, I save it. So the most recent one was a New Yorker article, which is about the slice Renaissance in New York, meaning pizza by the slice. Mm-hmm. It appeared maybe two or three weeks ago in New York. So there's a they li- they listed a place called Norm's in downtown Brooklyn, that I'm destined to try out this holiday vacation. <laughs> but uh, so I guess, a renaissance of pizza by the slice.
0: How do you, when you find something like that at this New Yorker article, how do you save it? What is the actual process of saving something like that?
1: I'd say I copy a link. I, I read the New Yorker uh, on its app. Mm-hmm. Um, I copy a link or I copy the whole article, and I put it on an email and I send it to myself. Mm-hmm. So I literally sent a, I've shared the slice renaissance with you from the New Yorker <laughs> 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 with a link that said something like Paulie G's pizza by the slice or something like that in the link. <laughs> yeah. And that sits and I'm now looking at it. I just pulled it up and I sent it to myself on November 18th. Mm-hmm. November 18th. And so here I am in New York and mm-hmm. I will refer to that link and my sons who are 21 and 17 and like pizza will come in and the two of the three of us on Friday or Saturday will put our 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 cold weather coats on and head out into the cold New York air, looking for a good slice of pizza. Oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> that
0: sounds so much more appealing than than like warm and sticky plus pizza. The the cold actually really lends something to it. I think that's I think that's uh, right. That's <laughs> funny. I think I've had pizza in Austin, but I don't remember from where. Yeah, there's uh, a there's a pretty de- there's a decent selection. I mean, it is a food town. Uh, Do you limit yourself to do you have a hard cutoff at one slice or do you allow yourself to let loose?
1: What's I let loose if I'm uh. sitting down having a pizza. It's a special moment, and <laughs> I <laughs> one slice would one piece one slice would not do it. <laughs> uh, I see, there's an eater, Austin. We're of course totally off track here, but I'm now looking. The <laughs> <laughs> Sano Pizzeria, mm-hmm. Little Deli Pizzeria, Pint House Pizza. Any of those familiar? Tony yep. C's, coal fired.
0: Yep. Pint House oh. is right next to a paleo restaurant, so you could go to picnic. P I C N I K, this is on Burnett Road for your yeah. your paleo meal in the morning and then walk fifty feet after a coffee to have the pizza at Pinehouse. So that Right, I
1: see it's on Burnett Road, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Funny. Yeah. That's one thing by the way, thanks to the internet. Oh, DeSano is on Burnett Road too, is you can pretty much find good pizza in any town in the world thanks yeah. to the internet. Just just all you have to do is best pizza in you get a pretty good list. (laughs) Shazam.
0: So, so I, I'd love to ask you about preparation. I was texting with Adam Grant, who's been on this podcast and you, you recently spoke on stage and At um, at Wharton and were very generous with students, which, uh, Adam really appreciated. Uh, and, the I, I was texting with him, asking him what he thought might make a good topic or question to explore. And one of the things that he mentioned, uh, and I'll just quote here, I don't think you'd mind. He prepares, this is he meaning you, prepares a lot more than most CEOs for meeting new people, maybe partially because he's an introvert, which he mentioned on stage. What's his prep process? Do you have a prep process for... Uh, First meetings with certain types of people.
1: Yes, I, I i don't um i don't have the time to prep for everyone, right? But I'd say seventy five percent of the time I do, and it's actually quite easy. I'll just go to the internet and type someone's name, um, and I'll often first look at a Wikipedia page uh, just to get a general sense, and then I'll see some things. I like that, like, for instance, you know, in your case, I want to look at uh, things that you've done, um, I'll try, try to look at work. I'll try to look at news to see if there's something particularly new about you. My recollection about you that stood out is you went, you either were born in East Hampton or you grew up there. I was a townie with a rat tail in the
0: Hamptons. I know.
1: Yeah, and I, I was a Long Island boy after I was born in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that struck me as interesting. Uh, and then coincidentally, I, uh, the person who helps me manage my money when he heard that I was writing a book said many, many months ago that the, if I'm going to sell books, the person I should ultimately sit down and talk with is you. <laughs> well, well uh, uh, please, please thank him. Thank him for the kind yeah, words. He did that because he, uh, I was at Tim Geithner. I can't remember what he, there was one, someone that you interviewed, That He had heard anyway, uh, but I typically will do uh, nothing. It's not overly um, interesting research, I think, but I try to just get a feel for somebody, you know, whether they sometimes it's a small thing, whether they have kids or not, uh, you know, where they're from, how old they are, even every once in a while, find out someone, you know, may have the same birthday as I do, or I don't know, there'll be something that'll stand out that just enables me to connect with that person um in some more meaningful way than than just sort of you know a a rote interview well a little
0: bit goes a long way uh and uh i i i want to jump from the the micro to maybe it's macro but i've certainly read Numerous instances of you talking about the importance of optimism as a leader. And, uh, I think I read a quote that you'd mentioned, you know, nobody wants to follow Eeyore, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, bother. And I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, recently for a whole host of reasons. And, uh, you mentioned your sons, 21 and 17. Uh, how have you, if you've thought about it consciously, taught your kids to see the world through a lens of optimism are there uh, i hate to use this word but mantras are there books that you recommend how how do you cultivate that in your kids if you've thought
1: about it No, i have thought about it i don't know that it's the first lesson that i'm or the most important lesson that i'm teaching them but and some of i find um what you do in educating your kids is you lead is you you teach by example or you lead by example. I, I, and I talk about optimism often. Um, but I want to make sure that that people understand what that means. I think there's, it's important to be a realist. So I'm not one of these that believe that everything will work out fine, um, all the time. Um, but I do believe that making sure that that, the possibility of something working out fine is very apparent, is right there. Instead of the opposite, this will never work out, or there's no way we will accomplish this, or there's no way we can do this. And it's part of it is, uh, I hate to use the word stick or the term stick but it's it's having the, it's being, it's having the, being able to be persistent, I guess, really working hard, trying hard to get something done or accomplished instead of it's kind of what I talked about earlier, even with Rune. Instead of immediately uh, concluding, "Well, this can't happen" or "This won't happen," so it's, I guess, that's in part aimed at at doing at being productive, at getting things done. But I think it also applies to outlook on life or aspects of your life. I think if you look at everything through a dark lens, meaning meaning dark and gloomy lens. Uh, then you tend to, I, I think it becomes a deterrent to having the energy to be happy or having the energy for things to actually work out right. It, it just creates a, a negative energy as opposed to the opposite. I think you need a positive energy for your life to be positive. So it's, um, it's, not, it's, it's not accepting the negative um, in a variety of different ways. But instead, Accepting the possibility of things being positive turning out. All right, right
0: the the uh, conversation uh, so far uh, With the exception of the the first boss at ABC and the the truck uh, fiasco um, Have focused on uh, Some of your successes and it's a long list but some of your successes have uh, to try to flesh out the the picture of you as a human being, would you be open to describing a more challenging time that you've gone through and how you have navigated your way through it or out of it? And I mean, any example would do, but would you be open to sharing for people who might otherwise be intimidated and think, oh, this guy hits a home run every time he steps up to the plate? That's not me. Therefore whatever conclusion they might come to is is there a a a difficult experience or a difficult time that you could talk about navigating
1: yeah first of all i have no i have uh, no problem whatsoever uh, talking about such things uh interestingly enough i don't see myself as a person that hits a home run every time he steps up at the plate maybe because i'm not convinced that the next time I step up at the plate, I'm going to hit a home run, or that every time I step up, I will. Right. I don't view things. I, I, I think of the possibility, as I said a few minutes ago, I always think there's a possibility, but I never believe that it's a given, ever. And so I don't really view myself as someone that succeeds at everything I do, because I don't know that I will. Um, and I've been fortunate that I've succeeded in a lot of what I have done, but it doesn't mean that I will succeed at everything I tried to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think the, I haven't, I have not fortunately in my adult professional life have have faced, I faced challenges, but not much adversity. What I mean by that is I don't really remember any particularly dark period of time, um, where uh, other than I want to talk about the succession process, which I wrote about at length. But other than that, I haven't really experienced that. Uh, while I was trying to become the next CEO of the Walt Disney Company, there was a conventional wisdom that it was existed and was very, very apparent to me that I would not get the job or that I was the wrong person for the job. And so there, I faced a significant number of naysayers that in even some cases that tried to convince me that I shouldn't even try because I was not going to get it. I was not going to win. And I never gave in to that. But I will say that for a considerably long period of time, meaning well over a year, I faced a, a, a lot of doubters, that if there was a struggle, it was making sure that those that were doubting me did not cause me to doubt myself. Uh, even though I was, the outcome was thoroughly uncertain, I never got to the point where I felt it was completely uncertain. And as long as it wasn't, or as long as it was open, I was going to continue to try really hard to get the job. So that would so that would one, and then we can talk further if you'd like about the adversity i faced with a father that was suffering from severe manic depression which is more of a that was a childhood experience that i had versus an adult experience well let's
0: let's talk about if you're if you're open to it thank you for putting that on the table uh the challenges or your experience with your father uh, I had a conversation not long ago with ken burns the documentarian who uh also had a father who I think in this day and age would probably be diagnosed with uh, bipolar or manic depression, or yes. whatever the current DSM mm-hmm. diagnosis is. Could you could you speak to that experience and what that was like for you?
1: Yes. Um, I recognized from a very early age that my father had severe mood swings. Um, and meaning he did not present himself consistently to to us as a family Um, and that was manifested in a variety of different ways but the one that I used the uh, example I used to describe it is he would come home he commuted to New York City to a suburb that we lived in that was about an hour away I could be up in my room on the second floor of our house doing homework or something and I could hear the door open I would always anticipate him coming home because it meant that we were going to have dinner together. And I looked forward I looked forward to seeing him most of the time, but I could typically tell what kind of a mood he was in by how he walked up the steps, sometimes passing my room completely um, um, because he was not in the mood, or sometimes opening the door and expressing some frustration about something. And sometimes not, sometimes showing interest and love and giving me time and, and being just generally Uh, upbeat about things, but it was very, very inconsistent. And um, I remember that from an early age. I also witnessed him lose his temper um, in, in, in ways that never made us feel like we were in harm's way or that anything bad was going to come of us physically. But he could get angry very fast. And he did so very often. And the anger was not particularly pretty to look at. And this was not just someone, you know, getting mad at something and then getting over it. This was like deep-seated anger at someone or something expressed in in pretty dark ways. Meaning, again, not apparent behavior, aberrant behavior or not something you'd say, this guy's a psychopath. But um, he, You could clearly see him be, be in or go to a very dark place. What is how do you relate to anger after all of
0: that experience? Uh, if you feel anger arise in you uh, how how do you, how do you relate to anger? And I know that's a very broad question, but this is something well, that I, I also can think about in for my own sort of personal uh, navigation of life, but h- how do you relate to anger?
1: I think it's a actually, I think it's a good thing to think about. I, I, um, I know when I was really young that I had a tendency to, to, uh, to lose my temper like him. Um, and I, I, as I got more and more in tune with his issues, I became more and more capable of controlling mine. And, um, I was able to suppress, my expression of anger in a very very effective way and that has served me well and lasted pretty much a lifetime um i feel sometimes it building in me but i am i am able to recognize either what it is or where it could go and take the necessary steps to um to contend with it in a healthy way which sometimes means letting it surface but letting it surface in ways that are either aggressive or as um potentially harmful to me or to others but i I learned i definitely learned to contain my mood my anger maybe even how i express my mood uh, because of him i did not there was a picture i was seeing of someone's behavior and i even before i had an ability to understand exactly what the root cause of it was that I did not in any way want that. I did not want that picture to become my life or part or, or to have basically maybe be the center of it.
0: I was, uh, so, so anger has been an emotion that I've, uh, I struggled with for a very long time. I think I've improved quite a bit uh, for, uh, I think some very similar reasons with similar origin stories. Uh, and I was reading a, profile in the New York Times and uh, I'm, I'm chuckling because uh, this is sort of deja vu all over again for me as well so it, 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 here's here's the quote it says you know I'm very organized and neat if I got into the kitchen and Willow's been in that's your wife mm-hmm. and she leaves a cabinet open there was a time when I would actually get mad at that you've got to be kidding why would I get mad at something like that it's pausing for a moment thinking does this really matter so I'm curious to I'd be curious to hear from you uh, because I think this will sort of ring familiar for a lot of people listening. What changed between the it used to upset you and now you are able to kind of uh, digest an experience like that that previously would have maybe uh, thrown you off in in some way or just irritated you? What, what has changed?
1: Well, I think some people... Um Improve with age. <laughs> not everybody, <laughs> but maturity, um, having the ability as you get older to recognize what is important about life, understanding sometimes the hard way by losing people you're close to, that life, in fact, is not uh, is, is not endless. That it's and in fact it's it's short, and the, the understanding that because of that, that there are things in life that just are are not, not important enough, don't rise to a level of, um, of causing anger, sorrow, conflict, or whatever. And keeping cabinets open in the kitchen is one of them. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I, I still, I'm borderline at times. My wife likes to keep newspapers that have you know, uh, 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 you know piled up for a week. And it used to be a time when I would just on like a Wednesday, I'd throw out Mondays and Tuesdays just because I didn't like the clutter. And now, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I just see them. I pause for a moment thinking, why do we, we really need those newspapers piled up? Then I realize, well, what the heck do I care? What's the difference? <laughs> why does that matter? Walk away. You right. Know? And so the same thing that sort of walk away and do not allow things that really don't matter to matter. -hmm. Make sure that the things that really do matter, in fact, matter. (laughs) It's kind of that simple. And I don't know. I think, again, it's age, it's it's trying to be self reflective, your own behavior and what it can mean to others. And sort of the old don't sweat the small stuff. It's very true. You know, I know we're all human beings, we all can. And there's still some things, as I said, and I don't like being late. Um, I get very anxious about that. <laughs> um, you know, like it's just, uh, again, I think a lot of it comes from, from not only maturity, but it's almost, the, there's a cruelty to growing old in a way because it means the end is nearer. but there's also a, a lot of value in growing old. Yeah, I would imagine, uh, I mean, I'm, uh...
0: I'm certainly, I don't feel old, but I'm 42 or 43. I always forget. Uh, My girlfriend reminded me the other day. (laughs) So that may not be a great sign. How old is she? Uh, (laughs) She's 10 years younger. So she's got, Mm -hmm. she's got a leg up um, in more ways than one. But she, uh, yeah, so she reminds me of how old I am. But uh, I've noticed that even compared to say that my 20s, that I have to be more aware of, energy expenditure, right? I mean, the, and I do exercise, I do everything that I can to maintain fitness, but it, I would imagine as you get older also, like if, if you do let the small stuff sweat you, you're just going to kind of brush off all of this extra energy that would be better allocated elsewhere. And maybe it's more obvious. Uh, I don't know, just, uh, yeah. thinking out loud. I
1: think that's some of it. Yes. It's where it's completely wasted energy when you think about it both physical and emotional energy.
0: When we were talking about optimism and I asked you about your, uh, your kids, you, one of the comments you made was, I'm, I'm not sure if that would be uh, the most important lesson or something along those lines. What do you feel some of the more important lessons might be or character traits that you are hoping to instill or have instilled in your kids?
1: Well, big one is, well, there are a bunch of big ones. Um, being humble, um, keeping things perspective, really important. Understand, we try always to help them understand that we lead an extremely special life, um, privileged life, that it didn't happen by accident. And it shouldn't be expected. They shouldn't expect that it, it will happen to them. Um, but and they, they have to, they have to one, appreciate it to work for it and simply not take things for granted. It's really important. Um, I'd say that's one, I'm a big believer in being true to oneself. Until you're true to oneself, you can't be true to others. We try to teach that to the kids in various ways. But it has to do with being sort of self honest, um, and and which is not easy to teach teenage boys. By the way, <laughs> um, how, how, how do you how, what what would be one of the approaches that you take
0: with that of one of the various ways that you might try to teach that or coach that.
1: Well, that's a well, that's a very good that's a very tough question. <laughs> Got to think about that a little bit. Um, I we tend to be quite transparent with the boys um, in that you know they we don't want them to see a life that is pain free or glossed over or um, you know not without anxiety or challenge or whatever, even though there's a lot about our lives that is anxiety free and challenge free. Um, and we like admitting to one another, if we're pained, if we're chagrined, if we're, um, in some form or another, um, you know, not, not in a, not in a good mood. For instance, we just, right. I guess, um it's just again it's being it's really trying to be honest with one another i'm not sure what parents do with kids i i, I don't know and that we're you know look it's hard i think as as children you, you it takes a long time for you to understand that your parents are human beings and that they have they have their faults mm-hmm. i think one of the reasons that happens is that parents often try to hide their faults from their kids um because you don't want your kids to see you in some human form, right? We <laughs> we, we we try not to do that. I don't know. I don't that's not necessarily we don't necessarily talk that way to one another. Hey, let's show our faults to our kids today. I think it's just the way you behave. What do you think looking at
0: fifteen years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company and having had many conversations, certainly about the The stories and learnings in your book. Are there any particular lessons or stories that you think and wish people would pay more attention to?
1: I think more than anything, what I want people to come away with is that from the outside, looking in, this looks probably like a straight line up from bottom to top, you know, sort of one step after the other, each step a step higher and responsibility, authority, compensation, whatever, but it doesn't really happen that way. Um, It's hard work and facing unknowns and rising to challenges and, and, and um, getting lucky. And what I'm trying to impart there more than anything is, even if it looks easy, it's not, it always takes all sorts of other elements, including hard work, uh, to uh, to succeed at something. That's a, I think I'm not sure that I had anything else in in mind. Um, and that it also is not necessarily part of a plan. I don't think life is as planned as young people think it is. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. That's another thing you learn, you know, in your sixties. Um, so I often I I'm struck often people say, Well did you when did you want to be CEO of the, of the Walt Disney Company? Or did you always want to be CEO of the Walt Disney Company? And so they you got to be kidding me. No, of course not. Oh, I didn't know I was going to be CEO of the Walt Disney Company until the board called me and told me I was getting the job. And I didn't really want to be CEO or expect that I could be until we were bought by Disney in 1995. And I thought, wow, I'm now part of a company that, since I was at or near running the company I was with, maybe the chance existed that I could ultimately run the company I was now owned by, but it wasn't until then. It wasn't something I grew up thinking about, <laughs> by the uh, way, one thing you brought up that you mentioned luck and people increasing the opportunities for luck right. before we talked about exercise. Mm-hmm. The one thing that strikes me there, I don't think this is necessarily about creating more opportunities for luck, but I have found that oftentimes doors opened uh, on opportunity for people and not everybody is able to walk through them for a variety of reasons. I've always been really fortunate that whenever a door opened, meaning a door to opportunity, I walked through it. I never walked away from it. And I don't know whether that is tied to Putting yourself on the line, taking a risk, allowing yourself to be challenged by new responsibilities and maybe different form of scrutiny or being a fish out of water. I don't know. but Or even things as simple as being willing to move. I've found a lot of people, when doors open, they're not as capable of walking through them for whatever reason. Sometimes just, by the way, self-doubt. And by move, you mean just move forward or physically move? No, I was even talking physically. I moved physically. from New York to L.A. and from L.A. to New York and from New York back to L.A. And I said, OK, put me in. That's an opportunity I'm, I'm, I'm going to take advantage of. But I have to move to get it. Now, that's easier said than done. <laughs> there are families at stake. And like, I guess you could argue that maybe I was selfish in that regard, although the decisions were never made unilaterally. Um, I had willing spouses but um, I've also met a lot of people who just say, no, I'm no, not going to do that. No, too risky for me to move. Or, um, and I was lucky in that regard. But what I'm also talking about is people who are reluctant to take on something new simply because they're not sure of themselves and whether, sort of whether they'll finally be discovered. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know? And I never worried about that. Oh boy, he may you know being tested at something else, and what if I'm not good?
0: Are there any any books or philosophers or leaders who you've not necessarily directly but leaned on to? Develop what strikes me as a very, and I mean this is in the most positive sense, a very sort of stoic philosophy. When I was reading, for instance, in your book about uh, meetings with the board and talking about an in- inability to change the past and looking forward to the future, I mean a lot of it resonates, at least for me, as as very practical and and stoic, very kind of Marcus Aurelius like. Um, are there any any kind of leaders or philosophies or books that you've leaned on uh, to help you stay the course in this way and walk through these doors of opportunity?
1: I've never really read a business book in my life. Uh, I mean, I read autobiographies. They're a little different. Um, Though I, I read and studied Churchill carefully over the years. And he faced a tremendous amount of adversity and and doubters along the way Uh, and 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 also unlike me he was involved in some really colossal mistakes including the tragedy at gallipoli in the in the the world pre-world war one era for instance where he i think he was secretary of the navy and uh, the onus was on him a major naval disaster. He ran for and won, ran for and lost more elections than anyone else in the history of, of Great Britain. <laughs> it says a lot.
0: Yeah, he's like the Babe Ruth of, uh, of British
1: politics. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I always was struck by someone who from the outside, or at least history kind of shows him to be this immensely successful world leader, when he wasn't always that way. Um, he got thrown out of office, actually, uh, as the prime minister and, and came back and he, he got unelected at some point. He came back and saved Great Britain. And maybe you could argue the world from the throes of Nazism, um, you know, was thrown out again when the war ended. Actually, he was voted out when the war ended and then came back again. Anyway, I, 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 I took a lot from him. Not sure if there are others. I really? Um, no, I've read a lot over time. A lot of biographies, a lot of uh, a lot of novels as well. Churchill would be the only one I could think of that stood out. Got it. And saying Churchill is a role model is can kind of a little bit over the top unto to itself. <laughs> uh, but what the heck, right? Yeah. Well, you've got Churchill, and then
0: uh, I suppose uh, back in the day, Ian Fleming novels. Am I getting that right? Did you read any Ian Fleming? Back?
1: I did. I read uh, I read most of his Bond novels starting junior high school, which would have been the early sixties sixty three sixty sixty two sixty three sixty four sixty five that era. Yeah, of course. From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Spy Who Loved Me, You Only Live Twice. Sure. Yeah. Well, you've uh, and now you have chronicled your
0: own adventures uh in the ride of a lifetime which i I really recommend to people i I think it gives a window into as you said the uh the non-linear path that you have that you have traveled and how it you've been very very good at capitalizing on Doors opening to opportunities, but it hasn't necessarily reflected a grand 60 year master plan for life, right? Uh, But you have been really willing and able to step through doors and take what others would perceive as as large risks. Uh, Do you have any quotes? I'll just ask a few more questions. Do you have any quotes that you think of often or try to live your life by do any any quotes come to mind and if not that's okay as well
1: yeah well the great one is the teddy roosevelt quote about about fail if you're going to fail fail daring greatly Do you know that mm-hmm. quote i do i can read it to you if you like if you yes please it. i gotta just want to make sure i'm now calling it up because i know it but i don't want to i don't want to screw up on any part of it Who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best, in the end, the triumph of high achievement—I'm sorry—who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. It's that last part: if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat so fantastic thank you for reading that
0: that is also uh that is also what lebron james has kept in his locker since
1: beginning his career it is uh really it is it is i uh i I did not know that i gave that inscribed to all senior management at the company many years back oh what a great gift it is a mantra of mine, and and I think it says a lot about what I've done. At least if you're going to fail, fail daring greatly. You know?
0: <laughs> uh, well, I think that's I think that's a fantastic place to wrap this up, and I also think that it's a uh, that that could be the the very very long subtitle, uh, the option B for. The ride of a lifetime. This book that I'm holding right in front of me, and uh, this this has uh, been a lot of fun for me, Bob. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say or suggest to people? Any parting comments? Anything at all that you'd like to add before we before we come to a close?
1: No, um, I enjoyed this thoroughly. I think you covered some really interesting topics. Uh, I think you 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 got under uh, my hood a little bit uh, in, a, in a good way. Um, uh, not in a way that made me uncomfortable or at all, or, but I think in a, some things I, I haven't talked about it specifically. I, I know I enjoyed it completely. Well, thanks so much.
0: And, uh, for people listening, we're going to have show notes, links to everything that we've discussed, including uh, the book and everything else in terms of resources at Tim forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening hey guys this is tim again just a few more things before you take off number one this is five bullet friday do you want to get a short email from me and would you enjoy getting a short email from me every friday if that? provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend. And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up This episode is brought to you by Humans Beat Elite. The product is Beat Elite, not Meat Elite, not Beat B-E-A-T, but Beat B-E-E-T Elite, which you might consider an endurance superfood, or what they would call a nitric oxide activator. Really all I care about is this product, Beat Elite was introduced to me several years ago by a multiple time world champion, and has since been recommended to me by multiple world-class athletes, and I use it pre-workout for endurance training. That could be cycling, that could be swimming, it is very rarely running. But uh, my subjective experience supports what some of the research would seem to indicate, and that is that you can work out say up to 15 to 18% longer if you're looking at high intensity interval training hit for instance, and uh, at recovery times. So the, uh, let's call it the refractory period for getting back to peak power output, for instance. So I use Beatley, just use it this morning before a 30 minute, somewhat intense swim workout. And I have found that particularly for someone like myself who has really terrible endurance, genetically speaking, my presets are horrible that it really does allow a 10 to 20% boost in shorter workout performance especially. Although I do know people who've used it for 20 mile runs, 30 mile runs, much longer endurance events. And uh, they've got all sorts of different points about the mechanisms of action and so on, but suffice to say that it is a lot easier to consume beatily than to eat the nitric oxide equivalent of six whole beets, for instance. Much more rapidly assimilated, and uh, it tastes great. Uh, It will also stain your pet polar bear, or your white cotton, or your down pillows, so don't spill it on anything, but it does taste delicious. I tend to mix this into a shake that I have pre-workout in the mornings. So, there you have it. I've used Beat Elite for a number of years now. It is trusted by hundreds of elite teams, athletes, and organizations all over the world. And it is also informed sport certified, which means that it is certified to not contain any banned substances. So if you're a competitive athlete, that is one fewer thing that you need to worry about. So, take your performance to the next level with Beat Elite. Try it out go to livehuman.com slash Tim to get 20% off your first purchase. The team at Human, that's the company, is making this offer exclusive to you, my dear listeners. So check it out. Go to livehuman.com slash Tim. Super simple. livehuman.com slash Tim. Give it a shot. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find an amazing designer and create designs you'll love. From logos, to branding, to packaging, to books, you name it, they have it. And I've used them for just about everything. 99designs is the go-to creative resource for any budget. I've used them for years now for book covers, for instance, mock-ups of The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for the multi-volume Tower of Seneca, including the cover, and many other creative projects. I've been very impressed by the quality of their work. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layout of my Five Morning Rituals eBook. The illustrations worked out great, I loved working with the designer we selected, and I plan to work with him on more projects in the future, and that's something you can do. You don't have to start from scratch every time. And right now, my listeners can get $20 off, plus a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. Simply submit a brief on the site describing what you need, And designers who are interested in your project, often from around the world, will submit concepts for you to choose from. You refine as you go, give feedback, and once you're ready, you choose one to finalize. It's a great way to get started and find the right match. A great designer and a great design at a great price. So head to 99designs.com forward slash Tim to learn more or get started today. You can also see examples of some of the work that I have done with designers on 99designs. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim.